Amen. So, uh, as you know, if you're a, a regular here at uh, Calvary Chapel Truckee, you know, our method of teaching is through the entire Bible, book by book, verse by, or chapter by chapter, verse by verse. It's our desire to know the entire counsel of God. And then not only to know it, but to apply it to our lives. And so this morning, I thought we would do something a little bit different. We take a, we've been teaching through the Gospel of Matthew. But um, this morning, I thought we'd do something a little different. And Lord willing, I'd like to take the next couple of Sundays and look at the seven sayings that Jesus uh, made from the cross. I, I think this study will prove to be a special one for us. This morning, we're going to look at the first three sayings that Jesus made from the cross. And next week, again, Lord willing, uh, we'll look at the last four sayings that he cried out from the cross. You know, if you've been with us over the last, oh, I don't know, month of studies or so, we've been looking at the events that have led up to the crucifixion of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, but just by way of reminder, I want to, again, briefly recount these events for us. I think they're, they're important for us to have them in our memory as we go forward. We saw Jesus in the upper room with his disciples, sharing his heart with him, right? Instituting the Lord's Supper. And you'll recall, he took the bread and he blessed it. He broke it. He gave uh, thanks for it. And he, and he gave it to the uh, disciples and he said, take, eat, this is my body which has been uh, given for you, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup and he gave thanks for the cup and gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is the blood of the new covenant which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And we know from the other gospels, Jesus also gave his disciples, some final words of instruction at that time. John tells us in his gospel that Jesus gave his disciples a new commandment. And that new commandment was to love one another. And our lives uh, as believers are to be lives that are marked, marked first and foremost for our love for God, but then a close second is our love one for another, you know? Following that upper room experience there in Matthew 26, we saw Jesus, you know, coming down the Temple Mount, crossing the Brook Kidron, going up the Mount of Olives, making his way to the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples. And there in the garden, we saw Jesus. It says that he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. And we saw him in his sorrow and distress. Pray three times to the Father saying, Oh, my Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. You know, it's in Mark's gospel that we're told that Jesus prayed crying, Abba, Father. And in Luke, Luke's gospel, he tells us that this was a time of such intense warfare. You know, Jesus was in such agony that he actually began to sweat great drops of blood. The medical term for that condition is hematidrosis. And it occurs when a person is under such levels of stress, levels of stress so great, that a person can literally sweat blood as the capillaries begin to burst 
and blood leaks out through the pores. And as we, we saw in our study, it, it, it wasn't that Jesus was wrestling. The stress that he was experiencing, the agony that he was enduring, wasn't because he was wrestling with the idea of the cross, right? The agony and stress that he was uh, experiencing was a result of knowing that as the holy, spotless Lamb of God, he would bear the sins of the world. He would take upon himself all the spiritual punishment sinners deserved, right? The holy Son of God who knew no sin became sin for us. He would bear the humiliation that comes with sin, right? He would experience the separation from the Father as a result of sin, right? For the first time in all eternity past, yeah? And the thought of this, the thought of this was so horrific to Jesus. You know, the idea of it all so terrifying that it just produced great agony within him, so great that he began to sweat uh, drops of blood. Luke's gospel tells us that at this time, an angel came to minister to him, right? The spiritual warfare being so great, right? There was such intense uh, warfare raging over him and his decision to go to the cross for each one of us, right? Knowing that there was no other way that we could be saved. He submitted himself to the will of the Father and he prayed, not as I will, but as you will. I mean, it's beyond difficult. As I've been preparing these studies in the last few uh, you know, weeks, it's just been beyond difficult for me to even wrap my head around, you know, to imagine how much Jesus endured on our behalf. You might remember that we noticed in the study that Peter... Uh, the very same night that Jesus was there in the garden, what was Peter doing, right? Uh, well, he was sleeping, but later on, he's warming himself at the fire, right, of the enemies of Christ. So it gives us an indication that it was a cold night. And while Peter was there warming himself at the fire because of the cold night, Jesus Again, enduring such intense warfare, surrendering to the Father's will, he's sweating, sweating drops of blood. And yet this was just the beginning. That night it just continued to increase in even greater difficulties for our Lord. We saw Jesus being abandoned by his disciples after he was betrayed by a good friend. He was betrayed by Judas. And not only was he betrayed by a good friend, but... He was then arrested and bound by the Roman soldiers. And if that wasn't enough, right, we're told that he was forsaken by all his closest friends, right? Not only was he forsaken by the, uh, you know, other 11 disciples, but we saw Peter, you know, one of his three closest friends, right? Peter denies him. You know, after, he was, after Jesus was tried, uh, before the Jewish leaders, you know, falsely accused, uh, beaten, and spat upon. You know, as a leader, uh, as, as they led Jesus away from Caius, Caiaphas' house, taking him to Pilate for judgment, as you piece the other Gospels together, you see that it was at that very moment 
that Jesus looked across the courtyard at Peter, right? And what was happening? Peter's cursing and swearing, saying, I do not know the man. And we're told that their eyes met at that moment, just as the rooster crowed. And it was the same Peter, the same Peter who promised Jesus, saying, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. It was the same Peter who now is denying Jesus Christ. And again, as you put these Gospels together, uh, we know that late that night that Jesus was taken to Annas' house, right? Annas was the authority behind the high priesthood, uh, behind the priesthood. He was the high priest at one time. He had put five of his sons in that position after him. But he was the real authority behind the priesthood. You know, at this time, it was Caiaphas. It was Annas' son-in-law who was the high priest. So what happened was when they arrested Jesus, you know, they first took him to Annas' place, right? Uh, the authority behind the priesthood. And when Jesus spoke to Annas, you'll recall, when Jesus spoke with Annas, one of the soldiers that was standing by, you know, struck Jesus in the head, right? With the palm of his hand because of the answer that he gave Annas, the high priest. And after the questioning before Annas, you know, we know late that night, Jesus was led to Caiaphas' house. And it was Caiaphas, uh, it was at Caiaphas's house that the Sanhedrin man, you know, basically the Sanhedrin was the judicial authority over the nation of Israel, something like our Supreme Court. Well, it was at Caiaphas's house that the Sanhedrin gathered together illegally to try Jesus. You know, they were never supposed to try a man the day he was arrested. They were never supposed to meet at night. They were never supposed to meet any place other than the official meeting place for the Sanhedrin. You know, all these things and, and many more is what makes this trial um, at Caiaphas' house illegal. It was completely illegal. Those are just a couple examples of the illegalities of Jesus' trial. So while Jesus is here at Caiaphas' house being tried illegally, what do they do? They arrange false witnesses to come and testify against Jesus. And they found him guilty of blasphemy and claiming to be the promised Messiah. Now, it was at this point that they began to spit upon him. You know, they even blindfolded him, uh, punching him in the face, mocking him. Prophesy, Christ. Prophesy to us if you are the Christ. Tell us which one of us hit you. You know, as we saw when we went through these, these verses, that this is where a lot, if not most, of the real physical damage to Jesus actually occurred. You know, being blindfolded, un, unaware of where that next blow was coming from, unable to react to it in any way to lessen the blow. And as the hours passed, turning into the morning, you know, the Sanhedrin condemned Jesus and sent him to Pilate. Now, the Jews didn't have the, um, 
right or the ability to perform capital punishment, you know, to put a man to death, you know, a capital punishment was something that was stripped away from their national sovereignty as a nation. It was stripped away from them by the Romans. So the Jewish leaders take Jesus to Pilate early in the morning so that he would pass judgment and have him crucified. And the charges that they brought against Jesus, of course, they were twisted and made up. The accusations that they brought before Pilate was that Jesus was an insurrectionist. You know, I mean, he accused, they accused Jesus of forbidding the people to pay taxes. They accused Jesus of claiming to be a king. And they even said, we have no king other than Caesar. So, so crazy. Pilate knew, however, though, that Jesus had been delivered up to him because of envy, right? And wanting nothing to do with this matter, Pilate repeatedly actually tries to to release Jesus. But the religious leaders, they kept pressing Pilate. And Luke tells us, that when Pilate had learned that Jesus was from Galilee, you know, belonging to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who happened to be in Jerusalem at that time. And Jesus, he stood before Herod also, another trial. He stood there silent as Herod questioned him. Uh, You know, Herod was hoping to see a miracle out of Jesus. And while Jesus is there before Herod, silent, the chief priests, they're there, and they're repeatedly accusing Jesus before Herod. And when Jesus didn't perform a miracle for Herod, he wouldn't even speak to him. We read there in Luke's gospel that his men of war began to mock him and treated Jesus with contempt. Then Herod and his men returned Jesus to Pilate, saying, He's done nothing deserving of death, right? And Pilate was left to make a decision regarding Jesus. It's a decision that everybody has to make. Pilate says, what then shall I do with Jesus who's called Christ? You know, it's, it's interesting. To me, as you put the Gospels together, you see three times Pilate said that he found no fault in Jesus at all. Three times Pilate sought to release Jesus. And we saw how Pilate, under political pressure, sought a compromise. You know, as that tumult began to grow, as uh, the the threat of a riot uh, was growing, Pilate, uh, in an effort to compromise, releases Barabbas and has Jesus scourged. He gave him over to the Jews to have him scourged. And... uh, we saw and we spoke about a couple Sundays in a row uh, how scourging was intended to remove the skin from the victim, exposing the muscles and the tendons and in some cases the vital organs. We saw how the victims of scourging were ripped, were whipped, you know, from the shoulders, the back of their backs, their buttocks, the back of their legs, you know, literally whipped from head to toe. And we, we also noted that after the scourging, you know, the back of a victim was nothing really more than just hanging uh, ribbons of flesh. Right? Many victims didn't make it through the scourging. In fact, 
Many victims died right there at the whipping post. And that's why after the scourging, Pilate, when he brings Jesus out before the people, he says, behold the man. Right? Look at this man. He's endured whipping, which resulted in the death of so many other victims. Behold the man. I think Pilate was amazed. And then the chief priests stirred up the people at that point, and they began to cry out, crucify him, crucify him. And as this continued, and Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather a tumult was rising he took water and he washed his hands before the multitude and saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. When they saw how, after that, we saw how the entire garrison, some 600 soldiers, you know, surrounded Jesus. They placed a scarlet robe on him and they then twisted a crown of thorns and they put it on his head and they put a reed in his hand and they bowed the knee before him and they began to mock him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And then the soldiers spat on him and then they took that reed from his hand and began to beat him over the head with it, just driving that crown of thorns deeper and deeper into his scalp. And when they had enough, when there's their sixth sense of humor and, and sadistic you know, tendencies were satisfied, they led Jesus away to be crucified. And we saw how Jesus was so badly beaten, so abused that, he, that you couldn't recognize him as a man, so weakened from the beating. He had to have his assistance just to walk to Golgotha, Golgotha, right? When they arrived at Golgotha or Calvary in Latin, right? They stripped him of his clothes. They laid him down on the cross, probably not gently, threw him down on the cross maybe, and then they began to nail his hands to the cross, right? Eight 10-inch spikes, you know, through his wrist and his feet. And they offered him sour wine that was mixed with gall, which worked as an anesthetic, an anesthesia. It was a painkiller to help victims deal with the incredible pain that was associated with crucifixion. But Jesus refused it, right? Jesus gave himself. He laid down his life, taking the punishment our sins deserved, right? Absorbing the full wrath of God in our place so that we would never have to endure that. And then they lifted Jesus up. And when that cross dropped down into the hole and hit bottom, right, the thud, that sudden stop of the cross hitting bottom, you know, transmitted, you know, a, a, a shock through those nails, you know, creating an unimaginable wave of pain coursing through Jesus' body. And Jesus hung there. And we talked about the, the effort required just to get a breath of air 
and the pain that would result from trying to just catch a breath of air, right? That alone produced unimaginable pain, just trying to breathe, you know, on top of everything else. And as we saw last week, all of that physical torture wasn't enough for those who crucified our our Lord, you know? The physical pain wasn't enough for them, so they began to mock Him and blaspheme Him, all in an effort to add emotional anguish to uh, indescribable physical pain. Can you even begin to imagine this? Can you picture it in your mind? Right Here's the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, you know, His clothes stripped off of Him, right? Placed a, a scarlet robe upon Him, putting a crown of thorns on Him, then mocking Him spitting upon him. And then they crucified him. I mean, can you just imagine it? You understand what the Lord went through for all of us individually. He went through this for you. You know, we pointed to these verses, to this particular verse uh, in the last few studies, but it's worth seeing it again. It's Hebrews 12.2. And it says, For the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. He endured the cross for the joy of being your Lord and Savior. You're the joy that was set before him. He endured it for you. He endured it for, uh, he endured it all for the joy of seeing you being able to be forgiven of your sins. Right, so that you could enter into a relationship with Him. He gave His life so that you could be set free, set free from the power of sin, free to live your life devoted to lovingly following Him with a whole heart. And I, and I know for most of, most of you, this is all background that we've covered over the last three or four Bible studies. But I wanted to lay it out again for us today so that it would be fresh in our minds as we look at what Jesus said from the cross. I think it's going to be even more significant next week when we get into the uh, final four sayings of Jesus from the cross. But this is the dark black backdrop, right, that makes his sayings shine even brighter before us as we take a look at what Jesus says from the cross as we try to understand how important these sayings are. So the first thing that Jesus said from the cross is found in Luke chapter 23. And if you can turn to Luke chapter 23 quickly, you might want to do it. Otherwise, it's going to be here on the overhead. It's Luke 23, 34. And it says, Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. The first thing we want to notice is that Jesus is a man of prayer. He opens his public ministry with prayer, and at the end of his public ministry, we see him here praying. You know, it's so important to notice this. It's so instructive to us, right? Jesus left us an example of a life of prayer. As we look at Jesus' life, and we see that he lived a life of communion with the Father, right? 
he would wake early in the morning and seek the Father in prayer. You know, he would take time to get alone with the Father, praying. We'd see him going off and getting away from others late at night, going to the mountain to pray to the Father. Before Jesus chose his 12 disciples who would, uh, you know, become apostles, uh, he spent the entire night in prayer. You know, one of the biggest uh, decisions in his ministry, he spent the entire night in prayer. And I already mentioned the Garden of Gethsemane, and you'll remember it was there when he was facing the greatest trial of his earthly life. He spent hours with his closest friends, Peter, James, and John. He spent several hours with, with them that night in prayer. And we need to understand prayer. We need to understand as Christians, prayer is so important. We need to understand that a prayer life or a life of prayer, you know what? It's the key to our walks with God, right? Jesus tried to impress this on his, upon his disciples, you know, and, and he tried to encourage us all to pray. You know what he said? He said that as his disciples, you know, we could pray to him. And whatever uh, his disciples, whatever they, whatever we asked in his name, according to his nature, according to his will, according to his character, we would have it. You know, he told the disciples after he went away, access to him would be just as effective, just as instant as if they were speaking to him face to face. I mean, talk about amazing promises, right? The Christian life is a life of prayer. Someone once said, when prayer ceases, Christianity ceases. You know, we need to understand when we stop praying, when we stop seeking the Father's heart, you know what? His direction for our lives through prayer, when we stop that, you know, that's when we become vulnerable to falling away. And that's just the reality of it all. That's the truth of the matter. Do you remember Luke chapter 11 when the disciples came to Jesus? Remember what they asked him for? Right? They didn't come to Jesus and, and ask him to teach them how to preach. You know, they didn't come to Jesus saying, Lord, teach us how to do miracles. The disciples witnessed firsthand Jesus' life, <clears throat> excuse me, devoted to prayer. And I believe as they observed Jesus' life, they came to recognize the power that was present in his life as a result of prayer. You know, they saw in Jesus' life the power of prayer. You know, and they came to him and asked him to teach them how to pray. And, and they knew that everything Jesus did, everything that Jesus did, it was a result of his communion with the Father through prayer. They saw it. They were aware of it. And they realized that prayer was the source of the power in Jesus' life. And they wanted to experience that life too. You know, it all, well, I should say, it has been uh, my prayer since I've arrived here uh, at Calvary Chapel, Truckee. Uh, you know, it, it's been my prayer that we would realize this as a church. Prayer is the key. Right? The power, uh, you know, uh, for us 
is through prayer. You know, prayer is what the enemy hates. You know, as a church, we can grow in numbers, and that, that's great. You know, that would be great. But the growth that I want for us as a church, you know, is to grow deeper, to grow in depth. You know, that only comes through the study of, of the Word of God and prayer, right? You know, the key to seeing our church grow both in breadth and depth, you know, the key to being effective as a church in this community is prayer. You know, if we'll, if we'll come together as a church and pray, Saturday night prayer meetings, you know, Wednesday life groups, if we'll come together and pray, you know what, I promise you, with all the authority of God, I promise you, we'll see God do amazing things. We'll see God do amazing things. You know, He'll do such great things for us, you know, as we go to our knees and seek His heart. God will do great things. You know, that's where the church moves forward. It's on our knees. You know, that's where the power of Christianity is found. It's found in prayer. Prayer is the pulse of the church. You know, when you see someone laying on the street, you know, unconscious, you go up to them and you kneel down and you check for a pulse. And you know what? There's no pulse to be found. What do you conclude? That person's dead. You know what? And that's the same for any church. You know, it's here, Jesus' first statement from the cross, that we're reminded that he was a man of prayer. That was the example that he left us. The second thing we want to notice is that Jesus modeled what he taught. Throughout his life, Jesus taught us to forgive. Jesus gave his followers a, a model prayer. He said, in this manner, therefore, pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be uh, your name. Thy kingdom come. I'm mixing up New King James and King James. I know that, but I memorize it in King James. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. You know, um, you know, on earth it is, as it is in heaven, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debt as we forgive our debtors. And then Jesus went on uh, to say something very, very important. We can't miss it. Matthew 6, he goes on and he says, but if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. You know, remember shortly after that, Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how often shall I, you know, uh, shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? You know, and Peter thought he was being very gracious, you know, big-hearted, magnanimous, you know, offering to forgive his brother up to seven times. Peter thought that was very generous since the rabbis at that time said three was the limit. That's all you have to do. After that, you're under no further obligation to forgive. But what did Jesus said? Jesus said to Peter, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. In other words, as his followers, we're not to keep track of the wrongs that people do against us, right? We're to live a life of forgiveness. As Christians, we need to keep on forgiving, right? And here we see Jesus modeling what he taught. You know, we don't see him praying 
to the Father to send fire from heaven, consuming those who were crucifying him. You know, he's not calling uh, for the destruction of those that are nailing him to the cross. On the contrary, he's filled, he's filled with love and forgiveness for them, saying, Father, forgive them. You know, they don't know what they're doing. First Peter 2, 21, Peter said, for, for to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. Remember, Jesus said in regards to those who persecute you and say all manner of evil things against you, he said, Matthew 5, 44, he said, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. And again, we see Jesus here modeling what he taught. As the religious leaders are rejecting and mocking him, as the soldiers are crucifying, nailing him to the tree, he's praying for them. Father, forgive them, you know, for they do not know what they, what they do. When we follow Jesus' example and pray for our enemies and forgive from our heart those who have wronged us, you know, we're protected from the cancer of a bitter heart, right? And we're made more into the image of our wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, I, I think we need to remember, you know, be reminded about the power of prayer and that no one is beyond the reach of our prayer, right? Many of us are here this morning because someone was praying for us, you know, uh, praying for you uh, when others thought, no way. There's no possible way. You're just wasting your time. They're a lost cause. And I can tell you the truth. That was my story, right? You know, Tina thought one day, who's the biggest sinner I can think of? I'm going to pray for them. And she immediately thought of me and she began to pray for me. And after a year of praying for me, you know, I got saved. I have a friend. He was a skinhead. He's on his way to, to uh, prison, you know what? And he found out after he got saved, his neighbors were praying for him daily for years. And now Matt pastors a church outside of London. You know, I know if we'll gather together and pray for revival in this church, pray for the lost city, in, you know, the lost in this town, the town of Truckee, God will do something that, will, that we would have never, ever in our wildest imagination ever thought possible if we'll commit to forgive and pray for those who have wronged us, we'll be blown away, you know, by what God will do on our behalf in their life. You know, I love the saying, and, it, and it's a strong reminder to me. I think about it often. Without him, I can't. Without me, he won't. You know, let us... Let us follow the example of Jesus and give ourselves to forgiveness and prayer. Let's be known in this town as men and women who are willing to forgive. Let's be known in this town as men and women who pray. You know, as we come to the next saying from the cross, we see the impact that praying has on, on those that are lost. You know, uh, forgiveness it has on those that have wronged us. 
you know, uh, as, as they, they're watching our lives. You know, there's an impact that, that is produced in people. As we follow Christ's example, there's an impact in other people's lives that watch, watch us. You know, and the next statement is found, um, the next statement that Jesus makes from the cross, again, it's found in Luke 23. You know, if you're not there, turn there with me this time, okay? Luke 23, verses 39 through 40. You know, we'll read this together, and it's here we get an, uh, as we read it, we get an insight into these two criminals that were crucified with Jesus. Luke 23, verse 39, we read, Then one of the criminals who was hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you're the Christ, <clears throat> save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward from our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, As surely I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. You know, I, I think it's, it's interesting to note that these two men were, were there being crucified for their crimes. They were thieves and robbers, right? But Jesus was not there because of any sin or any wrongdoing on his part, right? He was there to bear the, the sin and the wrongdoing um, of all humanity, right? These two criminals, they were there against his, their will, right? But here we see Jesus willingly laying down his life you know, they led Jesus away to be crucified. They didn't have to, like, you know, drag him, uh, you know, to the site of his crucifixion. He wasn't uh, yelling and screaming and kicking and fighting. You know, he laid down his life for us. These two criminals were powerless to escape. But you'll recall, uh, Jesus told Peter, Do you not think that I cannot pray to my Father, and he will provide me more than 12 legions of angels? Right? We also saw, uh, we also see here for these two criminals, it was the nails that held them to the cross. But as we noted in our last study, you know, it was actually the love that Jesus has for you. It was the love that he has for me. You know, it was his love for each of us individually that held him there on the cross. You know, many people read this account in Luke, uh, those verses that we just read, and they say, you know, you can't trust the Bible. You can't trust it. You're a fool if you trust the Bible. It's full of contradictions. You know, Luke says one criminal blasphemed Jesus while on the cross. Matthew says they both blasphemed Jesus. You know, you can't trust the Bible. You can't put any stock in what the Bible says. It's full of con contradictions. Is that true? You know, is the Bible just chock full of contradictions? No, the answer is there's no contradiction to be found in the Word of God. None whatsoever. Believe me, many people have tried to no avail to even find just one. You know, when I'm out sharing Christ with people, <clears throat> I'm, I'm hoping they say to me, you know, the Bible's just so full of contradictions because it's that point. I just say, hey, show me one, please. You know, it'd be loving to, it'd be a loving thing to do to just correct me, to show me. Show me one contradiction in the Bible. 
And they'll say, well, you know, I don't have my Bible with me. <laughs> it's right then when I hand them my Bible. Here, use mine. You know what? They never, nobody's ever showed me a contradiction. Never one. They're just parroting something that they heard somebody else say. And at that point, you can just go into the gospel because now you're the authority. Right? Well, anyway, in this case, what I think we're seeing here, you know, when these critics point out this is, is a contradiction, I don't think this is a contradiction at all. What I think we're seeing here is conviction. Right? You know, the way I see it is both criminals began to revile uh, and blaspheme Jesus while they were hanging there on the cross. They were just following the crowd. They were hoping that he would save himself, come down from the cross, and also save them too. But then one of them, seeing how Jesus prayed for those who were crucifying him, seeing how, you know, seeing that he was willing to forgive them, I think that one came under heavy-duty conviction. And I think it's amazing to realize that Jesus, <clears throat> excuse me, was uh, crucified between two thieves. Both witnessed his crucifixion. You know, they both read the charge against him. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. They both heard his words as he prayed for those who crucified him. But only one of them was convicted. You know what? Only one of them came under the fear of God. And you can see it there in verse 40, Luke 23, verse 40. He says, do you not even fear God? He's saying that to the other criminal. You know, this criminal recognized he was guilty of sin. Do you not even fear God seeing you are under the same condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our sins. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he placed his faith in Christ. He believed in Jesus, that he was the promised Messiah. And he called out to him, confessing him to be Lord. Look down at it with me, verse 42. He said to Jesus, Lord, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. You know, I'm so thankful that the Bible says, Romans 10, 13, the Bible says, for whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We don't have that verse. Well, it's Romans 10, 13. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. I mean, this criminal called out to Jesus, confesses him to be Lord and then receive the promise of everlasting life offered by a Jesus. Verse 43, look at it. Jesus said to him, Surely I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Right? What blesses my heart in this story is that Jesus receives all who come to him. Right? He doesn't care about, you know, what you've done in the past. He just wants you to come. You know, he doesn't, care. It doesn't matter to him when you come, whether it's early in life or it's late in life. You know, what's important is that you come when you hear his words. When you experience that conviction, he wants you to respond uh, and come to him. You know, people often uh, wonder, they'll ask about deathbed conversions. Well, hey, guess what? Here it is, right here in the Bible. Right? But we should never gamble that we have a chance or the wherewithal at the end of our life to cry out to Jesus Christ. 
you know what? Jesus receives all no matter when they cry out. But if you hear the Lord today, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior today, today's the day of salvation. Today is the day He wants you to come to Him. Don't put it off. You know how sad it is for the other criminal. He also saw Jesus being crucified. He heard Jesus praying for those that were crucifying Him. He even had the added words of, of the other criminal testifying of his just judgment, reasoning with him regarding his sin. You know, Jesus' uh, sinless life, he also told him about, right? You know, he told him about the fear that, that one needs of a holy God, and yet he was unmoved. His heart was hardened, right? He was unrepentant. And I tell you what, isn't it crazy how two people can hear about the love of God? you know, and the sacrifice that Jesus made for them. Two people can read the same chapter in the Bible. Two people can, you know, listen to the same sermon, right? And only one of them be touched. You know, the other one walk away with indifference in his heart. Yeah, you know, it's time to get to the free samples at Costco. Only one of them convicted, you know, and turned to Christ for salvation and forgiveness. While the other one, you know, he walks away with a hardened heart, reviling the Lord, unrepentant. You know, I think we need to understand as believers, it's our job to share the gospel, right? To pray for people, to let our light shine in this dark, dark and dying world, right? But we need also to be encouraged, right? Some people are going to reject our message. You know what? Don't give up. Don't give up, right? Don't be discouraged, as you faithfully share Christ with those that don't know Him, you know, uh, some people won't respond. You know what? They'll get, they're going to reject Jesus. Right? We need to pray for them. We need to pray for them. Some will respond. Some won't. But I tell you what, man, what a joy it is when you share Christ with someone who doesn't know Him. What a joy it is when they respond to Jesus. Right, when they respond to the invitation, what a joy it is to be able to tell that person, you know what? One day, one day we'll be in heaven together, worshiping Jesus in the presence of God sitting upon that throne. You know, what a joy it is to confident, uh, confidently promise them that their future is secure in Christ Jesus. Right, I heard a story about a couple who went to this one church. And the pastor, he happened to be sharing on this, the church, the thief and the cross. Today you'll be with me in paradise. And the pastor said, because you're all here this morning, you'll be with me in paradise one day. And this couple, they said, wait a minute, what? You know what? Uh, we're out of here. And you know, they left that church because they knew it wasn't church attendance that gets you into heaven. That's not what happens. Salvation only comes through placing your faith in the finished work of the cross, placing your faith in Jesus Christ. It's faith alone, in Christ alone, that the righteousness of Christ is imputed, imparted to us. That's only the thing that causes God to declare that we're justified, right? Declare not guilty, right? It's only through the recognition of who Jesus is and calling out to Him, placing our faith in Him, 
calling out to him that our sins are forgiven, right? And our eternal destination is uh, secured and it becomes heaven. The third statement is, is found in John's gospel as we finish uh, here today, right? Uh, turn with me, if you will, to John chapter 19, verses 26 and 27. John chapter 19, verse 26. We read, When Jesus therefore saw his mother and his disciples whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Verse 27. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. Jesus is hanging on the cross and he sees his mother there with John, right? One of his disciples. And he makes this third statement. And what we see here is Jesus honoring his mother. Paul writes uh, in Ephesians 6, 1 through 3, Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, say, says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with the promise, that it may be well with you and uh, you may live long on the earth. Now the word honor there, you know what it means is to give them the highest possible respect one person can give another, right? It happens to be a command of God to honor your mother and father, right? What an example Jesus gives us here, man. I mean, Jesus is no longer a child. He's in his early 30s here, and he's still honoring his mom. People often ask, well, what, what happened to Joseph? You know what? We don't know. Most biblical scholars, most Bible scholars believe he died early uh, in life. But here, Jesus is in his mid-30s, and he's still honoring his mother. Right? We see Jesus here in a, time, in a time of the greatest pain and suffering. Right? And he's still concerned about his mom. Right? Before he could die for the sins of the world, he had us before he could secure salvation for guilty sinners in the world, he had to first take care of his mom. You know, the apostle Paul writes to Timothy in regards to aging parents. And he says we're to take care of them. You know, he says if someone fails to care for their aging parents, then he's denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Right? We're to honor our parents. It doesn't matter, you know, if we're children living uh, at home with our parents or as adults with aging parents. We're to honor our parents as long as they're alive. Right? Wait a minute, Gear. <laughs> You don't know my dad. You don't know the type of man he is. You don't know what he's done. You don't know my mom. Not my mom. I mean, she's always nagging, always in my business. No, we're to honor them. We're to honor them. With the highest possible respect one person can give to another. Right? How's that possible? Again, you don't know my dad. You don't know my mom. How is it even possible? The answer is prayer. We pray and we ask God for help. And you know what? He'll meet you. And he'll give you the strength to do it because that's his will for you. That's his will for us. It's a witness to our parents, not to mention those people that are looking on from the outside. We're seeking to glorify God through our obedience 
to Him in this area. And that will impact everyone that's looking on because they know your mom, they know your dad, right? And it will impact your mom and dad too. Well, let's turn our eyes to John here. You know, Matthew 26 tells us that all the apostles fled and forsook Jesus. But here John's back at the foot of the cross, right? After forsaking the Lord and fleeing, now he's back at the foot of the cross. And look how Jesus responds to John. Does he lash out in anger? You know, John, I'm done with you. You know, I, I knew I couldn't trust you. You failed me for the last time. Get out of here. No, that's not what Jesus says, right? Does Jesus rebuke John for his failure? No. But I think that, that uh, sometimes we feel that's the way that God looks at us. You know, sometimes I think people think that's the way that God looks at them, you know? But notice, it's not the response of the Lord towards John, right? Jesus still had a very special work for John now that he's returned to him. And I think it's worth noting that the Lord honored John, right? When, when he returned to him, he gave John the privilege of caring for his mom, right? He tells John, in, in essence, hey, John, take care of my mom in my absence. Give her the love she deserves. You know, I'm, I'm entrusting her to you, John. You know, but that's not all he had for John. He uses John as a leader in the early church. He also gave John the clearest revelation of himself found in the Bible, the book of Revelation. And you know, John, by the way, you know, he also pastored the seven churches mentioned there in the book of Revelation into his old age. You know, Jesus wasn't done with John. And here's the lesson. Maybe you've stumbled. You know, maybe you've turned your back on Jesus and you've abandoned him. Maybe you've walked away from the Lord off doing your own thing, thinking, you know what? I've been so backslidden for so long. You know, or, or maybe you're thinking, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm such a miserable failure. You know, the Lord probably would like it better if I would just, you know, disappear, just go away. None of that is true. Maybe you're wondering how God could possibly use you, you know, at my age. How could God use me at my age? I mean, dang, I got one foot in the grave. Well, let me tell you, the Lord has a significant work for you. He has a significant work for each of us still, right? He has a work ahead of us. He wants to, you know, he has a work that he wants to entrust to you. You know, there was a time in my life that I thought God was finished with me. And you know, honestly, sometimes I, I still wonder, you know, dang, you know, pardon my French. I don't know if that's French. <laughs> Never hear a Frenchman say that, but maybe I shouldn't say that. I'm sorry. But you know what? If you feel like that, that God's done with you, God would encourage you this morning, right? God has a plan for you. Come to the foot of the cross this morning. All you have to do is come to him and he'll restore you. You know, he has a plan for you. If you've stumbled, if you've made a mess of things, if your life is in total disarray, don't leave today until you get things straight with the Lord, until you get things right with the Lord. You know, if you need prayer and you walk out that door after the service without receiving prayer, the devil has just ripped you off. It's just the truth of the matter. You know what? The Lord receives all who come to him. 
He's not angry at you. You know, he can and he does desire very much to restore you. He wants to use you for his glory, even now in ways you could have never, never uh, imagined, just like he did with John. Finally, final point. Thank you for being patient with me. Finally, we have the fulfillment of Simeon's prophet uh, prophecy in Luke chapter 2 here. Uh, in, in this final saying of Jesus Christ from the cross. You remember the Lord promised Simeon that he would die. He wouldn't die, uh, not yet with that one. Coming up. Everybody's eager to hit that button. Get those verses out there, you know. But you'll remember that the Lord promised Simeon that he wouldn't die until he saw uh, the Lord's Messiah. Simeon was holding on and holding on, uh, you know, in his, in his old age. And then eventually, Mary and Joseph bring Jesus to the temple. And Simeon realized through the Spirit that this Jesus, this was the child, right? He's the promised one. And he blesses Mary, and he blesses Jesus, and he gives, them, gives her, gives Mary, this very unusual prophecy. And we read it now, Luke chapter 2, verse 34 and 35 says, Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. And here it is. He says it to Mary. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Your own soul also that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Do you know that's exactly what's happening here as Mary looks up and sees her son hanging on the cross? I mean, imagine how that sword pierced Mary's heart, seeing her son nailed to the cross. I mean, can you imagine what a sword it was through her heart as her son is concerned with her needs at that point? Just imagine the sorrow that she must have felt. I mean, can you imagine watching her child go through what, or watching your child go, go through what Jesus endured. I mean, just imagine, try to picture it in your mind. Think about it. What she must have felt as she looked up at once were small little feet that she once, you know, washed when he was a little child. You know, the, the hands nailed to the cross that were once little hands that she would kiss, you know? You know, now with eight 10-inch spikes driven through his hands and feet, pinning him to a Roman cross, the forehead that she would smother with kisses, you know, the face that she washed off so many times when Jesus was a little boy. I mean, can you imagine the pain and the anguish that she's going through? You know, I think for most of us, we can relate, uh, you know, but just in a little way, you know, what Mary's going through, you know, especially if you're a mom and dad, grandma and grandpa. I mean, you know, it hurts. You see your kids, they, they fall and they skin their knee, you know, and it just, it just hurts. You know, you're trying to comfort them, you know, and you just hurt for them as they're suffering. They're, they're crying out, you know. But now we can understand maybe a little bit of what Mary went through, but now try to imagine the pain that the father went through offering his son as a sacrifice for sinful men, watching them spit on his son, mock him and beat him, abuse him, 
Can, can you just imagine what the father must have been going through seeing his son nailed to the cross? Is it possible this morning for you to just get a glimpse of the pain of our heavenly father? You know, the pain that he went through there seeing Jesus there on Calvary. I mean, it was the greatest demonstration of the love of God for you. That's what the cross is. That's what Romans 5.8 says. But God demonstrated his own love towards us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Right? God loves you so much. You know, he demonstrated that love so that there would never be a doubt. There would never be a doubt in our minds. I mean, imagine how great a love the Father had that he would be moved to give his son to be brutally murdered in order that you might be saved. You know, there's never been, nor will there ever be, so great a demonstration of love for you. You know? And if, again, if that wasn't enough, try to imagine now the depth of love that Jesus has for you as he willingly went to the cross to lay down his life, willingly went there to die, to pay the penalty your sins demand. I tell you what, how are we to respond to that kind of love? You know, Paul wrote to the church of Ephesus, Ephesians 3, 14, 19. And, uh, you know, why don't you turn there with me and we'll look at it together here. Ephesians 3, 14 through 19. Something that you don't want to miss. Ephesians 3, 14. For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width, the length, and the depth and height to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Do you know how much God loves you? I mean, do you really understand this morning how much the Lord loves you? Has that truth really penetrated deep into your heart? Have you plumbed the depths of God's love for you? You know, doesn't reading this passage passage in Ephesians, doesn't it just make your heart burn? You know, knowing that there's more to Christianity than what I'm currently experiencing. You know, as believers, as a church, let's purpose in our hearts to go deeper with Him, to press in, leaving the world behind. You know what? Let's respond to His love appropriately and go for it with Him. You know, let's renew our commitment if that's what's necessary. Renew our commitment to follow him and to live for him with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, all of our strength. Let's purpose to really do it, not just to agree to it and walk out the door and then that's the end of it. Let's press in in prayer, right? The power of God will be released as we press in and pray as a church. Right? Let's forgive those who have wronged us. Let's just let it go. Right? Let's love one another as Christ commanded that it may be known by all in this town, 
and abroad that we're his disciples. Let us live our lives for him in such a way that would be a witness to people who are on the outside looking in. You know what we see in, that's associated with these first three sayings of Jesus from the cross is we see a life of prayer. Forgiveness extended, faith in Christ, witnessing to others, obedience to the command of God, being found at the foot of the cross, greater ministry ahead, right? And if you'll be patient, and if you'll wait on the Lord, you'll see the fulfillment of every promise made to you. That's what we see here. These are the things that God wants each of us to know and do as his followers. And the question is, what priority will we give these things in our, our lives and our walks? Let's pray. Father, I'm stirred by your word. Father, I desire to respond appropriately. Lord, I desire to say like Paul, to live as Christ, to die as gain. You know that none of these things in the world, none of the, the darkness, none of anything, that whatever anybody wants to make, none of that moves me. I'm running after Jesus Christ. Lord, I want to press in for, for the upward call of God that's found in Christ Jesus, Lord. Would you work it in each one of us? Lord, would you reveal your heart to each one of us? We ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.